Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, April the 2nd, 2019. This is episode 2413 of the Survival Podcast, and I'm making good on my threat. As a Tuesday, it is time for a Just Jack show. We all know that, and last Tuesday... I did part one of a multi-part series on permaculture, and I said that we probably wouldn't do three in a row, but we would definitely do two in a row, and that this Tuesday I would do part two, and we would talk about a bunch of other things to do with permaculture, like, oh, we're going to talk about basic earthworks, we're going to talk about sectors of design, terraces, plowing and ripping texture, how to evaluate a property through the permaculture lens of water, access, and structure, and six more design principles building on the ones that we talked about last week. So that is what we are definitely going to do today. And uh, I would say, if you didn't catch last week's show, which was episode 2408, The Design Science of Permaculture Part 1, you might, you might, not definitely, but you might want to go back and listen to it. If you are new to permaculture and you don't really understand what permaculture is, I'm going to say you definitely probably want to back up, rewind, go back to 2408, listen to that one, and then come back to this one. And I'm probably going to end up doing like a four-part series, I think, on, on this year, or this early part of this year on permaculture, kind of reinvigorate that subject in the audience. And I am tagging the entire series under Perm Series 19 for Permaculture Series 19. So you'll be able to find all of these shows in the future once this whole thing's done. So if you're listening to me in the future, which means I'm speaking to you from the past, because that's how podcasting works, um, and you're like, man, I just found this episode. I think this is really cool. You can go to the survivalpodcast.com and search for Perm Series 19, the number one nine, and you'll be able to find everything that I've done in this series so far, or if it's concluded the entire series. Since I don't know when in the future you'll be listening I can't really tell you. Anyway, before we dig into this, uh, I got some stuff for you in the intro segment of today's show. Number one, I want to let you know that yesterday afternoon I did a dirty trick. I uh, I put out a April Fool's video entitled "Why I'm Endorsing Bernie Sanders for President in 2020." And I will give away the fact that I rickrolled everybody that watched it. So uh, I, I talked for about two minutes and then dropped in about 30 seconds of Risk Astley's uh, I'm Never Gonna Give You Up and, and did the classic old school rickroll, uh, which if you don't know what that is, just Google rickroll. And I, it's funny to me, I actually had a few people like curse me out and stuff in the comments. Anyway, so that it won't be confusing to people in the future, I did turn the video into a private video. Uh, but it can still be seen as long as you have a link to it. I will link in today's show notes if you'd like to see my April Fool's joke and you didn't get a chance. It will be in today's show notes. Uh, so that's cool. Next up, I want to let you guys know that, um, again, it is uh, only a few weeks away now. April 25 and 26, we have a pond building workshop here at Nine Mile Farm, the Survival Podcast Ranch. 
And uh, I had two people cancel. I had sold out, but I had two people cancel. I have two tickets available. Uh, they are $300 a piece. You can be a couple and come together, or you can be an individual that wants one of them. If you're interested in picking up one of those cancellations, let me know. Just email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC Workshop in the subject line. I'll be looking for those today. And uh, so it's an opportunity for someone that didn't get in when we sold out. So just wanted to let you know about that. And uh, let's talk about our two sponsors of the day real quick, if we could. Sponsor day number one today is Backwoods Home Magazine. This is the easiest company that when they came to me and said, can we sponsor the show? I'm like, yeah, of course you can. I first subscribed to Backwoods Home Magazine sometime, I don't remember exactly what year it was, but probably 94, 1994. I've been a subscriber ever since. I get the magazine delivered to my home to this day. I first discovered them in 93 when I moved to Texas after I got out of the Army. And it was a big part of kind of reconstituting my mindset after being away in the military for so many years and kind of regrounding myself back as the country boy that I grew up as. They also, over the years, you imagine over 20 years of reading something like Backwoods Home, a lot of the knowledge I share with you uh, finds some level of its rooting in Backwoods Home magazine and the work of the great writers over there like John Silvera, Jackie Clay, Dave Duffy, and others. Uh, Backwoods Home went away for about a year. They, they stopped doing a print edition of it, and it's back now. And as soon as they came back, they asked to come back as a sponsor of the show. Of course, I said yes. So check out BackwoodsHome.com. It is the authority magazine on the information you need for homesteading and self-sufficient living, BackwoodsHome.com. Next up today, ButcherBox.com. Kind of told you about what's going on yesterday with ButcherBox because I wanted you to know, but it's still going on. They have a deal right now. If you're already a customer, you can do this. If you want to become a new customer, you can do this. You can get... Two pounds of ground beef in your butcher box every single time you get a box for as long as you stay a member for like for life. Now, I have a deal for MSB members where you can get free bacon for life. So I want you to think about what this means. This means you can go to butcher box and the, the normal size box with six selections that comes to your house every month is 149 bucks. Most people with that box probably get either some ground beef or some bacon or both because it's ground beef and it's bacon. Ground beef is so versatile, and if you don't like bacon, I, I just don't think you'd even be interested in butcher box. They have a deal right now where you can buy in for life on the ground beef. It's thirty bucks, and you get ground two pounds of ground beef for life. Well, that means those six selections just open back up, so you could get you could literally it, the way they have it set up now. You could get all ribeye steaks. You could get like six two packs of ribeye steaks plus the ground beef, and plus the bacon, and you're at the base price. Now, the, the important thing to understand is if you're an existing customer, it's a little tricky to get the two pounds of ground beef. You might see them scroll across in your account area. There is a scrolling thing on the top that shows you some of the specials. But the easiest thing is go ahead and log into your account and then go to the ButcherBox homepage, and you'll see the offer right there because they're really using it as a new membership drive thing. But you can select it and drop it right in. And if you're a Butcher Box customer, always check out your monthly specials. Like I said, this year, this year, this month, I added some salmon to mine. Uh, that was a great opportunity in the past. I've done things like legs of lamb and some other really cool stuff. Uh, they have grass-fed brisket, for instance, this, this time around as a special that you can add on. So they have kind of the core products, and they have different things that come around that you can add on. A lot of times, I think they kind of come into a windfall on something, like a surplus of something. And some of the best deals are those add-ons, so keep an eye out for them. But, guys, ButcherBox is great. I love them. They've been a, a sponsor now uh, for over a year. 
I have been a customer for over a year. They're the only sponsor I have. I take my payment in their product. I, I get paid with a box of meat every month uh, instead of, of money. So check out ButcherBox.com. I cannot recommend them highly enough. And right now, boy, that deal starts to get really good with the free bacon, the the you know the 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 free ground beef etc. Make sure if you're going to sign up as a new customer and you're an MSB member, you go to MSB, get the code to sign up with because it attaches to your account and that discount applies for life. Then add the ground beef for life, and you're set with just this beautiful box of meat coming to your house every month. With that, let's uh, let's dig into this. So again, this is part two of the permaculture design series for uh, 2019. And what I realized last week, I think I did a really good job of explaining the core of permaculture leading off with the prime directive and the three ethics. The prime directive being the only ethical decision is to take the responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. And then the three ethics, care of the earth, care of people, and return of surplus. Whatever we have in surplus, we should return it to the system to the end of the first two, care of the earth and care of people. But what I didn't do is like, well, what the hell is permaculture? And this is an odd thing because most things, if you said define it, what is a car? I can tell you what a car is. It's a pretty basic definition. And everybody out there would probably have a pretty similar definition to what a car is. Even if we said something like, what is ecology? Right? We'd say it's a, the science of you know, environmental systems, right? Uh, or ecological systems. If we said, what well, is economics? It's the science of economic systems. Permaculture, though, if you ask different permaculturists to define it, you'll get different definitions. The way I define permaculture is a design science based on ethics that helps us build self-replicating systems that provide needs for humanity. Okay, that's how I define it. And because I do not limit it to agriculture. As we if we go through some of the things today, you'll start to realize like even though there's a lot of natural components that we're going to talk about today, we could design a town with this. And not just we're going to design this town so that there's edible food when we walk through the town. That's what most people would think of. We're going to, we can design this town so it's less likely to be destroyed by flooding or fire. We can design this town so not only do we deal with the waste that the town produces better than most towns do, but so that the waste that's being produced around the town can be channeled or prevented from affecting the town. Right? These are not normally what people think of when we think uh, of permaculture. We can design the town to preserve views that people would want to see or to design out views that people would not want to see. Right, So permaculture we can use to design a business. We can follow ethics and principles and pattern recognition to design a very effective business. In fact, I'll tell you, my business, the survivalpodcast.com, is built on permaculture principles. My entire business is based on the fact that, first of all, I must take responsibility for myself and that of my children. So my business must produce enough revenue that I can actually do my business every day and do a good job for you guys and not have to worry about whether or not I can afford to live. However, with that, I have to make sure that I'm doing certain ethical things. I can't be harming people with my business. Now, if somebody's upset or offended, that's not what I mean. But nothing I do, like that's part of my business, nothing I do should directly harm somebody else who's being peaceful and not bothering me. And it should be as environmentally friendly as it could. I don't. I mean, if you think about what I do, 
I have a much smaller environmental footprint today than I did when I started the show. I don't drive hardly anywhere, right? I do all my work from home. My business is paperless. Um, and my business incorporates many other aspects of caring for the earth in my own backyard and brings that into the show topic. And everything that we do in surplus is reinvested into our lives and our business and our community. And that has created a self-replicating type of community that not only does the community continue to grow, the community has created other communities. The Zello community, the Facebook community. The business has created other businesses. We have countless success stories of people that write in and say, because of what you do, we started a business. You see how this works. Like It's not just about being able to grow trees and bushes. You can actually cause communities to self-propagate. You can actually cause ideas and ideals to self-propagate if you follow the design principles we're going to talk about today. And everything that I'm going to say, and we're going to be very much traditional permaculture today. We're going to lead off here with sectors of design, looking at the wind and the sun and water and pollution. But I want you to think bigger. I want you to think bigger. Because unless you think bigger, you won't see the patterns. And without seeing the patterns, you can't really be gifted with the gifted is permaculture thinking. Because it will be so limited. It will be, what can I do with this backyard? What can I do with this farm? It won't be, what can I do with my life? The picture that I've used for both of the uh, episodes so far is me teaching permaculture. Uh, I'm standing in front of a class of about 70 people in my garage. You can see I've got a PowerPoint deck up. I've got a diagram behind me outlining uh, zones of design that we talked about in the last episode. But the caption on the image says either you are designing your life according to your terms or you are following the path designed for you by others. And this applies to your life. It applies to your business. It applies to your finances. And it applies to your backyard. Think about the average person just for a second here. Let's, 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 let's pull back and say, what does the average suburban yard look like? Well, it's about one-tenth to, to three-tenths of an acre, somewhere in that neighborhood. Unless it's a corner, it's a rectangle in general. Out in the front, there's a little one lollipop tree, probably a mailbox in the driveway. And then there's a garage that the car pulls into. Probably out in front of the house, there's a little landscaped area. Maybe they've gone a little bigger and there's some bushes and shrubs in front and there's a lawn. In the backyard, it's either barren because it's a new house or there's a couple lollipop trees, maybe a deck and a pool. But you could look, go on Google Earth, pick a city, switch to satellite view, and then find a suburb. Zoom in. And look, yard after yard after yard after yard. It's like somebody got a postage, uh, a, a rubber stamper and went, So, if you don't design your property, it will be designed by what society says it should look like. If you don't design your economic situation, it will be designed the way society says that it's supposed to be. You're nobody unless you owe somebody in our society. It's a consumer-driven economy. We can determine where people will end up in retirement, including on average what age they will die by, because people don't design. So look for that bigger thing. 
Now let's go ahead with that backyard or even a community or a town. And let's learn about something called sectors of design. I can sum up sector design for you this way. It is about any and all energy that affect the system or a piece of property. And we're going to stick with property from here on out because it is the more concrete, easier to understand basic level of permaculture. So when we are sitting on a piece of property, we can look around and say, well, where does the wind come from? Where does the sun come from? Where does noise come from? Where does pollution come from? And then sight, image, light is an energy. So let's go through these. Wind. Now people would say, well, the wind blows wherever the wind blows. Sometimes the wind blows this way and sometimes the wind blows that way. Well, that's true to a degree. And we can design a property to moderate or channel wind. But as we're doing that, we should say to ourselves, self, what are the dominant winds? At least we should go with the two dominant winds in the, the extreme seasons of summer and winter. What are the dominant hot winds of summer on this property? And what are the dominant cold winds of winter on this property? And I really think that we need to look at what are the dominant cold winds of spring if we're gardening. This might be the most important thing because it's that early spring when the plants are young and they're easily affected by wind, beating the hell out of them. Gardeners put all those pretty little plants in. They went down to the box store and bought. And then the wind comes in and just tears them up. So we need to figure out where the prominent winds come from on the property. We can do this a multitude of ways. We can do it through strict observation. We can simply go outside every day, a couple times a day, and say the wind is blowing from this direction. It's heavy, it's light, it's moderate. And then we can diary that over time and get very site-specific. Or we can do something, go, go like to the main uh, weather websites, Uh, the local uh, airport weather uh, information services, etc., NOAA, and we can find out. They'll, sh they'll give you a map with average wind speed and the direction that it comes from for your area. Well, we want to do this design like a compass. So we have a picture, even if it's just a hand-drawn picture of our property. Our house is in the middle. Here's our property boundary. We'll have a circle, and you, I'm going to give you a link where you can see. Actually, I'm going to give you several links where you can see different people doing this. It'll make it make more sense. But basically, then we'll have this almost like a pie chart in this area. The wind primarily comes from this area, and that is the hot summer wind. The cool spring wind primarily comes from this sector, and the the cold winter primarily from here. Now we can let's just go forward, but just start to think already about what you might do about those winds. Then we want to know what is the solar uh, sectors like. Now, obviously, the sun goes from you know east to west, and is in the northern hemisphere anyway. It it is in the southern part of the sky, so you get the least amount of sun from the north. But we want to know what does the sun look like as far as how the light hits our property at minimum. December 21st, which is the shortest day of the year, the winter solstice. And June 21st, the longest day of the year, the summer solstice. Really, though, I think we want to have an, an understanding of where it is on our equinoxes as well. March and September are equal day and night. At least that's the way we best think of it, what we call it, equinox. And on top of that, we want to know, well, how does shadow impact this? You might have an area 
that you would think is just baked by sun, but a structure, i.e. a building, shades it to where it gets no sun. You might have an area that you would think would get very little sun, but in certain times of the year, like for instance where I live, the sun really doesn't, from a matter of aspect from my property, rise in the east and set in the west. It rises in the northeast, and it sets in the northwest. The sun makes this, because of my latitude, the sun makes this huge arc across the sky. So that even my back porch, which is on the south side of my house, late in the afternoon, in the summer when I have the longest days, the sun blazes in under the porch. Now, if I don't want that to happen, then I might think about what can be planted to break that so that I don't have that sun coming in. Where I might think about how to allow sun to come in that's being blocked by something or position a structure if I wanted to get more sun into it during the winter to help warm the house. Where a garden is going to go, where a greenhouse is going to go, this is all going to depend on where the sun hits the property. That's another energy coming into the property. Water. The flow of water onto, across, and off my property. We're going to look at contour here, and we're going to talk more about contour in the next episode. But contour affects everything about a property when it comes to the, some of the cores we're talking about today, water, earthworks, etc. So contour is simply how the land lays. If you look at a contour map and you see a line on a contour map, that is a level line across the, the, the property. And the next line down is a fixed d drop in, in, in feet or meters or yards, depending on how that map is delineated. And then that line is a level path across the property so that we understand how that flows. So obviously, if we have a property with a valley in it, whether it's a tiny itty-bitty valley that we really can't even see unless we observe what happens when it rains or we get out and we mark those contours. But if we have a valley and we get a lot of water, the water's going to move through that valley. And if we have a valley, then we probably have two spurs, two ridges. And that water's going to move off those ridges to the valley. So that's going to have an impact on how water flows through the property. If we impede the bottom of the valley, we create a pond or a dam. Now, whether that's a pond or a dam that stays wet or simply acts as like a wetland and soaks water in depends on how we do it. But we need to think about how water moves on, off, and across our property. This includes things like our hard structure. If, if we get a small amount of rain... And we have, let's say, relatively sandy soil that is, has a lot of, uh, of ability to absorb water. Even if we have a little bit of a hill, pretty much nothing happens. The water falls, and you know, 80, 90, maybe even close to 100% of it gets absorbed. There's no runoff. When water hits a roof, we get 100% runoff. We get 100% of the water that hits a roof, runs off the roof onto the ground. So that creates a, a, an expanded catchment. Now when that water hits the ground, how much penetration does it get? Does it, does it absorb 60% of it, 100% of it, 25% of it? Once that happens, where does it go? So we need to simply map out where does water come onto the property from. If we have a neighbor, and that neighbor's property has a big valley and a large amount of catchment, and our land kind of is bottom land, and it flattens out. 
then that water comes screaming off our neighbor's property. And it can either create a problem or a solution based on how we design our property. So we need to know how water gets onto the property, whether it's from rainfall or runoff from other properties, what roads are up from us, how does that water channel. When it just pours, we get a major rain event, four, six, eight inches of rain in one event over a day. What happens to the water? Pollution. Yeah, I don't know a lot of people think, well, I live in the country, I don't have pollution. Do you have noise? Do you have a road that you that has traffic on it that you personally don't like the noise that comes from that road? Then that's noise pollution to you. If your neighbor likes the sound of trucks, that's not noise pollution to him. He likes it. Noise pollution is subjective. I think there's certain sounds that all of us would find objectionable, but noise pollution is subjective. What is the noise that you don't like? What about chemicals? Well, if you have that road out there and you have all that exhaust, and if there's a time of year where the wind primarily comes from that direction, you have a certain amount of air pollution. So we might put up really high trees to help deal with that because trees can take that pollution and actually process it. If we have water coming off hard surface, it can be a blessing and a curse. If it's a heavily traveled road, you have a lot of residues that can then be washed into the property. So we might actually want that water, but we might actually push that water through a riparian zone. So a riparian zone we always think of as like trees along a creek bank, right? So that we don't erode the creek bank. We can actually create a riparian buffer from a water harvesting opportunity. So now the water comes off the road, and maybe we could pick up tens of thousands of gallons of water, but it's kind of icky water. But if it goes through a baffled kind of set of trees and swales before it permeates through the rest of our landscape, those trees do a lot to deal with that pollution. So that first layer of trees, we might want to be trees that are not necessarily edibles. They might be more in the form of fuel and material and fiber. Or maybe even bee trees, because those flowers are probably not going to have that much of a contaminant in them. The trees are going to process that throughout the whole year, and the flowers are going to be a manifestation only in the spring. So we need to know that sector. Where does that pollution come from? And pollution we're going to define here is anything we don't want. All right? Views. We want to, what is our view sector? And I'm going to explain a cool way to think about, like, expanding what we would normally think of. But basically, any view that you have, you either would want it or not necessarily want it. So if you had a big, beautiful valley to your south that you could see way out onto, you might want to think about where you plant large forests and trees because you might want to preserve that view. That doesn't mean that you wouldn't plant anything there, but you might plant lower-growing things to preserve that view. It's a common-sense thing. People do it all the time. Sometimes people even remove some trees to enhance a view. If you had a property and everything was pretty nice, but in this one, like, 20-degree uh, space to your southwest, let's say, there was an industrial park that looked really crappy, you might want to then block that view or at least frame that view in a way that it no longer is offensive. But here's a way to really think about how we can expand things even further. I learned this at a workshop with Dave Jackie, who wrote the Edible Forest Gardens guidebooks. He said he was at a property that had been really well designed, really well thought out from all of these things. 
And that one of the views was there was actually a lake up on a mountain. So when you stood on the porch, you could look and see this little pond that was on a neighbor's property at a higher elevation than you were. And this is a mountain property, beautiful light sparkling off of this pond. And he went into a bathroom in the house. And as he stood in front of the sink to wash his hands, he realized there was a standard mirror, but the mirror didn't come all the way down like they normally do. There was actually a window below the mirror that you could see out of the house when you were in the bathroom. And it seemed kind of crazy until he, he went down to wash his hands. And, of course, when you wash your hands, you bend over. And when you bend over and the cold water hit your hands as you looked out that window, it perfectly framed that pond. And even though it was hundreds of yards away, it was like you were touching that pond. Because someone thought enough to, when they designed the sector of view and they put the structure in, which is a key element we'll talk about in a bit, to think let's connect these two things together. That's what can be done with good sector design. Fire. Where are your fire dangers from? Fire, here's a constant on fire. It moves really fast uphill, and it moves slower downhill. Now, winds can change this, but in general, when fire hits the bottom of a hill and begins going up that hill, it moves quicker than it does from, from, from top to down. If you have a really big, empty road, wide road over here, it acts as a natural fire break. If behind you, all you have is miles and miles of forest, it presents a greater threat from fire. You may want to create your own breaks in the system. So we can only go so long with these individually here, but we need to think about that. Wildlife. What are natural movements of wildlife across your property? Now, if you live in the suburbs, this might not be as big a deal, but if you have a property and you're out in kind of in a more rural area, you have a multi-acre property, and there's game trails across your property, you're going to want to think about that as you make design decisions. You might be able to influence that movement of game differently, or you might be able to enhance it. If the goal for the property is to make it a property for hunting and gathering, we want to make that access better. If the role for the property is more agricultural, we might want to kind of push those animals, those natural flows around the outskirts. What are the attractants? What brings wildlife to a property? We may want to enhance or retract that depending on the goals of the designer. Basically, as I said in the beginning, it's any and all energy. And we just simply ask ourselves a question. What is this energy? How does it work? And do I want more or less of it? And how do I make that happen? That's sector design in a nutshell. That moves to earthworks. Earthworks is one of the ways we can really control many things, but specifically wind and water. We have a lot of control. The concept that you need to think of with earthworks is one of the few constants in design. And one of the few constants in design is that water moves at right angle to contour. That's a little bit of a fancy way of saying water moves downhill. So why not just say that? Because it's not just downhill. You stand on a hill and you look down, you can see down many different ways, especially from the top of the hill. But water is not going to move evenly down that hill. Like I said, if we have a, a, a valley a, going down that hill, a hollow, if you're a country boy, a holler, 
right? Then water's going to concentrate in that holler. And if we have a spur, which you think of like a, the, the, the minor version of a ridge, a high point, you look at your hand, make a fist, and look at your hand like you're going to punch yourself in the face. The area between your fingers, those are your hollows, and the tops of your fingers are your spurs. And that water's not going to go down that spur. It's going to go down that hollow. Think of it again like a valley is an easier word for more people to think, though it's a larger structure. So water's going to move at right angle to the contour that it's presented with. And we need to think about that because everything that we do with earthworks, if it's going to move water, is going to have an effect. And if we say we put something in on contour and we mean it's level, and it's actually, it looks pretty level, it's basically level, it ain't level. If it's two degrees, it's going to move water. In the two degrees down that it's going to go, if it's level, it's going to spread water evenly in both directions. Neither is wrong, but we need to damn sure know what we're doing and why we're doing it when we do it, because we're going to make shit happen. We're playing with major elemental forces when we start changing the way water flows. And putting something in you think is level, and actually having it on a two-degree pitch, goes from spreading water to making, during a major rain event, a river. So we need to know what we're doing. We need to think about it more than just water goes downhill. It runs at 90 degrees to contour. All right. Right angle to contour. Uh, swales. I want to start off with swales because this is the big earthwork that everybody sees, everybody hears about, everybody learns about when you learn about permaculture and everybody wants to do. The most important thing I can tell you about a swale, other than it has to be level or it's not a swale, or if it's on any kind of a pitch, like let's say a one-degree pitch, you better know why you're doing it. But is the most important thing is not every design should have swales. Swales are not always the right solution. Sometimes instead of a solution, a swale can be a problem. Right. With that said, now I can tell you what one is, so you just don't go run out and do it. A swale is a ditch on contour at absolutely level condition for the purpose of permaculture design. Okay, That means that we take something like a backhoe or an excavator or a bulldozer and we mark a line using something like an A-frame level or a laser level that says, this line is a level line. Then we excavate a ditch. All the dirt that comes out of the ditch goes on the downhill side of the ditch and we use a non-compacted mound. If we compact it, We've made a long, skinny dam. That is not, repeat, not, 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 never not what a swale is supposed to be. And a swale, a full-size swale, is a forest, a tree-growing system. It is not for gardening. It is for growing trees. So your first question, if you say, should I swale, is do you want to grow a forest? Do you want to grow at least a civil pasture, which is trees lining pasture strips? If you do, then the answer is maybe. If you don't, if you want to grow corn, then you do not want swales. Right? The next thing is, do they fit my situation? How much rain do I get? What's my soil like? Am I on fragile, brittle ground, or am I on very resilient ground? Am I wasting energy or wisely using it? If you are at a place where you get plenty of rain, it's relatively flat, the soil is incredibly deep, you are probably, not definitely, but probably better off if you want to grow trees, just figuring out what the pattern is you're looking for and start planting trees. They're going to grow. If you're on a brittle landscape where you have to make 
every drop of water you naturally get count. And every drop of irrigation you apply count. Then maybe, and probably, swales will work if what you're looking to do is grow a forest-based tree system. Right? We have to think about other things with swales, like access. We're going to talk about that here in the next segment. But when you put a swale in, it can be an access path or it can be an impediment to access. We need to make sure that we don't do something like put a swale from property line to property line with no way to get access in between to what we call the inner swale, the space between one swale and the next swale. But the primary function of a swale, well, there's many primary functions of a swale, but one of the primary functions is to, to slow and spread and infiltrate water. We take a piece of land. And that land has all these little imperfections across it. And we find a contour line that goes 500 feet across that land. We take an excavator and we excavate that ditch. We make a big swale, six to nine feet in width, one and a half feet to two feet in depth. And that, that ditch, when it's full of water, is going to hold 15,000, 20,000 gallons of water. You can do the math and figure it out depending on how big you make it. We need to make something called a sill. This is a place where when, the, when, the, when the, the ditch gets really, really full, the water can get out. We do that, we're going to go you know, somewhere between uh, three to nine yards wide, maybe wider for a really big swell, maybe multiple sills in a really big system. And we're going to make that ground absolutely level in front of it and compact it just there. And in that spot, we're not going to have that non-compacted mound. We're going to move that dirt out of the way. We're going to leave an opening. Now, it's important to understand the mound doesn't hold the water in the ditch. The ditch holds the water in the ditch. That's why the mound is non-compacted. And initially, when it rains, the ditch will hold no water. The water will soak into the ditch. But eventually, you get enough water and enough catchment. The ditch will fill up. And when it exceeds capacity, the water will go out of that sill because it's a level and wide structure. Instead of running out and causing erosion, it will sheet Like, like going over the edge of an infinity pool and be passive slow water, which will be channeling caught by the next swell and so on until it leaves the property. So we reduce, not increase erosion, if we do swells properly. Then we're going to plant into that mound and downgrade of that swale, and we're going to create also a nutrient flow. Um, if you look at some of my property pictures, you see when the swales are full, they're full, oh, dogs, they're full of um, my ducks, and the ducks are pooping in them. Well, that manure, nutrient flow, now is actually moving through the landscape, not just across it. That's going to create its own ecosystems, its own soil food web. So swales are awesome, but you got to know why you're doing it and what you're doing with them. I have a great video called um, The Five Primary Functions of a Swale. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can learn more about swales today. Next with Earthworks, I want to talk about ponds and dams. Water's life. If I get a piece of property and it's got you know, somewhat mature, useful trees and bushes on it, I am very hesitant to cut them down. The one thing I will always cut trees down to do, though, is to put surface water on a property. Because what it gives back exceeds what you take to make it happen. If you gave me a piece of property with good soil where I could put ponds in and you gave me five acres of property to work with, it is conceivable that I might have as much as two surface area, two, two surface acres of water on it by the time I would be done with it if I had an unlimited design budget and if everything worked to make it happen. It might be less, might be more. It would not be a two-acre lake. 
I don't have a problem with a two-acre lake on a 100-acre property, but you give me a five-acre property, I'm going to be putting dams in that run anywhere from a tenth of an acre to a quarter of an acre. And the more little dams I can put in and the more dams I can interconnect, the better. So we talked about contour lines. So I want you to start thinking about how this can really work. So one of the things that we said with swales is since they're a ditch on contour, they slow and spread water. So what that means is if we have a contour line that goes across a property and it's at an area that makes sense to do it, we can put a swale almost all the way across that property. Every drop of water that lands upgrade of that swale in one way or another flows down into it gets captured. Now, we can put a pond at one end of the swale. So when that swale exceeds its capacity, instead of rolling out of that sill, it flows in and fills that dam. Once that dam is full, it then will push the water back up the swale, and we could have the overflow for the dam 100 yards away from the dam. We could have the overflow, I mean, in an extreme situation, we could have a big dam, and the overflow for that dam could be 100 yards away or a half a mile away from that dam because the overflow could be the sill at the other end of the swale. So even though we're using all of this catchment to fill this one pond way over here on the east, we could be discharging the water way over on the west. But if we are smart, we might say a couple hundred yards away or a hundred yards away or 300 feet away or 150 feet away, wherever it makes sense to do it, let's put another dam in. And their swale connects those two dams. And then as the swale continues on, we have another dam. So maybe we have one swale going across a property and it's feeding and dealing with the overflow for three dams on that same contour line spread out. Now we can plant trees along that. We create that riparian zone. We create that inner swell buffer. This is a way to start thinking about earthworks, right? Um, with ponds and dams, I'm going to say this. If you think that you're in over your head with the construction of a pond or a dam, you probably are, and you probably should seek out a professional pond or dam builder and the services of an engineer to do some water calculations. They don't have to know anything about permaculture. You take any good engineer, show them what you're doing, and they understand catchment. They'll know what a swell does, even if they've never called it that before in their life, even if they've never done one on contract, they've always put them on a pitch. They'll understand what it does, and they can run the numbers and tell you what you're doing will work, won't work, or here's what you need to do to make it work. Be careful. We're talking about major forces here that we're dealing with. But again, we do it right. We pacify them rather than make them angry. Uh, next is terraces. A terrace is actually very similar to a swale. Terrace is one that usually requires the least amount of explanation for people because most people are familiar with the concept of terrace even if they don't know nothing about agriculture. It's a flat spot on a hill. And a flat spot on a hill can be really big or really narrow. And terraces are something I think, though, we, they get underutilized in design because we don't think about them at different scales. So terraces also, just like a swale, slow, spread, and soak water. So we might be able to take a terrace, and instead of making a dead-level terrace, maybe we take a gentle slope, we cut a terrace into it. A terrace is pretty wide. Let's say it's something like 20 yards wide. We could actually make that terrace a one-degree pitch back into the slope. That means when water hits that terrace, it would actually flow back into the hillside a little bit and infiltrate more water. Should we do that? Again, we might be consulting an engineer here. How steep is the slope? How much catchment is it? 
We could go from creating something that basically is a very fertile terrace to creating something that becomes a landslide, depending on how we do it. So we have to figure these things out here. But we can create terraces that are really, really small. And people would say, well, what is the purpose of that? It really can't capture that much water. Well, it can't, but it can be a footpath. The best way to put a footpath across a property is to stay on contour as much as we possibly can. Now we can have a really steep hill, but we can navigate across it very, very comfortably because we have a level path. And that path is going to be very resilient. It's going to not be likely to get washed out in a major rain event because the water is going to sheet off it rather than being channeled and concentrated to a single place, creating a cut. And once that cut starts, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So we need to look at how we can use terraces for access, water control, flow, growing things. We can plant trees right into a hillside. No, no swales, no nothing, right climate, right soils, just plant trees. But we can plant the trees on contour. Then we can go below the trees and cut a small terrace into the hillside. We can go above the trees and cut a small terrace into the hillside. If we're smart, we'll cut those small terraces before we plant the trees. Why? Now we can walk across that terrace to harvest, maintain, plant, uh, cut down, prune those trees. Our life just got easier. We can put garden beds on contour on a relatively steep slope. It's a simple, round, kind of raised bed style. We're really smart then to put terraces between the beds so that we can walk to harvest, to weed, etc. So terraces are incredibly important as earthworks, and they could be something we're pushing with a bulldozer or doing with a shovel. We can mark a contour line, go in with a shovel, cut out a specific amount of soil, and flip it over to the downhill side. And if we cut one foot with the shovel and we flip that one foot over and we cut it right for the slope, and really the human mind is great at pattern recognition. You will quickly see this is how much to take with the shovel at this angle and flip it over. And we cut a foot with the shovel, we flip the foot over, we end with a two-foot path that goes across the, the, the property and we can have anything up or, up or downgrade from that terrace that we can then work on. If we have a garden bed or shrubbery, let's say cane fruit like blackberries above that, then what happens is we're standing just below the blackberry bush, but we're pruning the blackberry bush at about five foot of height. On a relatively steep, slo steep slope, the top of that bush is now you know, right about waist height or chest height. Very easy to work, to harvest. And once we know that, and this is where we want to tip our canes, Instead of having to reach up to do that, we walk along that little terrace with our pruners and just prune at eyeball height or whatever it is, or chest height. And even when you, if you hire somebody or bring somebody else onto the property to help you, you could say, okay, well, I prune here, you're taller than me, so you prune here. And boom, that's it. That person can just walk through and prune those because of the magic of design. When we do design properly, we can bring new workers into the system, new maintainers into the system, give them simple instructions. They can do exactly what we want. Terraces are one way to make that happen. Another form of earthworks people overlook is plowing and ripping. Because we are so enamored with permaculture, with perennials, which don't require annual tilling, 
with no-till methods of gardening and crop, even main crop production that are no-till, we don't think of plowing and ripping as a, a tactic or a technique, but it is. It may be only at the establishment of a system. Jeff last week answered a question for people, Jeff Lawton, where he said you could take a bulldozer with the rippers and rip lines on contour. It'll make these big cracks in the ground. They'll pretty quickly heal over the next year or two. As, as the soil, But during that time, they'll infiltrate so much water, it's like putting a temporary swale in. We can do that with plowing. We can plow on contour just to create an infiltration so that when it rains, the water stops running across the surface. If we want to establish a food forest, and it doesn't really make sense to swale, we can, but the ground is compacted, we can go in with a plow or a ripper, mark contour lines, and, 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 and cut into the land. Then we can plant it, we can let the land naturally heal, and because we've now planted the right types of bushes, trees, vines, and herbs, like we talked about with our layers last time, the ground will not recompact itself. And overall texture. I think when we talk about earthworks, people are always thinking about bulldozers and excavators. But when we go out and we, we do anything in our landscape, even little bitty things, we want to put lots of texture in our landscape. One of the things that makes something like Hugel culture, which is a big mound with a wood core so effective, is not just that it has a wood core. And does all the great things wood cores do, like reduce irrigation, it's a carbon trap, it's a nutrient trap, it's a slow composting method, it's a fungal bed, it's just all these things. But, I mean, think about it this way. If you have a big hugel mound, or a big mound, you just push a big windrow-type mound in, okay? And the base of that mound is nine feet across. And that mound goes up six feet, and then has a top flat level where you can get up there and walk of three foot wide. So you got nine feet at the bottom, three foot at the top, six feet on the sides. How much surface area do you have to plant into? You got six up one side, six down the other, that's 12. You got three across the top, right? That's 15. How much space are you taking up? Nine feet. You went from nine to 15 feet. You gained six feet. If that mound goes 300 feet along a property line, and I wouldn't do it right on a property line, I would pull it back so you're not imposing this on your neighbor. Let's say we pull it 15 back from the property line, and we put that thing in, it goes 300 feet. We have increased the square footage that can be planted into by 1,800 square feet, just in that strip, because we can plant on the up, the down, and the top. We have turned 9 feet of width into 15 feet of width by adding texture. And every little place that we add texture in a landscape, we create more surface area to work with. More surface area, we can have more interactions with our soil food web, with our, our natural composting and breakdown and fungal inoculation and beneficial bacteria. Now we can also, we're also, what we're really doing, we're creating more edge. And we learned last week that edge is where the abundance is. If we're not smart about this, we can create edge that creates an abundance of things we don't want. If we design access out with our texture, we can make it harder to mow, mow or to maintain a property. So we have to be careful with this, but texture allows us to do all these things. We want to be smart with it. 
And that's the basic understanding of earthworks for the purpose of this series. So with that in mind now, I want to talk about how we evaluate a property. And I, I feel that I pushed it this far out in this series because now by understanding sectors of design, zones of design based on activity, basic earthworks, the magic of you know paying attention to contour, And all of the other things that we've talked up to today, these three simple words will mean so much more to you than they would have meant if we started with them. They are water, access, and structure. So if you go out and you look at a piece of property, whether that piece of property is a suburban lot with a house already on it or whether it's a great big piece of rural land, you can always look at a piece of land from the standpoint of water, access, and structure. So let's start with water. We want to know, where is there water on this property? Is there already a pond, a dam, a stream? Is there already city water or well water available on the property? How does that water, is it pumped? Is it pumped with electricity? Is it, is it designed such that it can be moved because there's simply pressure? If you have a dam high in the property, we can create a way to move water from that dam to use it for irrigation 100% with gravity and zero energy. Immense amounts of pressure with just 20 or 30 feet of drop. So we want to know where is the existing water and where could water be? Where are the places we could put in a dam? Where are the places that we could bring water with a pipe and a pump? Where, where if we put a structure or there is a structure, how could we harvest that roof water? So we want to know everything we can about how water would access the water would be held, used, and managed on the property, even in a suburban yard, because that could be as simple as, well, it's not that big. With a piece of pipe here and a piece of pipe there, and I already have existing pump water, I could have water to every square inch of this property easily. And the way this is sloped, I could put a little garden pond in there, and then that would overflow down that little contour, and that would create a nutrient, and I could put my garden on both sides of that, and create this little bird habitat at the end, or whatever. Or, gee, this is a great property for grazing cattle. All that shit Jack was talking about, I could put 18 dams on this property, and they would be six dams on each level of contour interconnected at this altitude, that altitude, and that altitude. And then I could graze cattle in between them. Doesn't matter. You want to know where that is. There's a creek on this property. It's also on the lowest part of the property. So moving it's going to require energy. I can do it with a hydraulic ram pump. I can do it with mechanical pump and electricity. But if it's a creek, most likely it's going to be in a low part of the property. Maybe. Maybe I'm in a low land below the creek. If that creek I still have access to, now I can move that water, assuming I can legally, with gravity. I can dam that creek up to a degree. Whether I can actually dam it up or I can pseudo-dam it up depends on regulations. A lot of places you can't dam up a creek, but you can get a bunch of rock that's laying around right by the creek and put in wares. Now we're holding water. right? We're basically creating terraces in the creek that don't stop the water, they slow it down. Now we back more water up. Now maybe this creek that couldn't hold fish all year can hold fish all year. Now maybe we can use, if we have ducks, they can go in and access that water, so we might want to think how our duck system would relate to that water system. But one way or another, we want to know everything we can about water on the property and water that could be on the property and how it will react. The next, access. 
How will we drive across the property? How will we get to the parts of the property? We want to know a lot about contour in this situation. The best way to put a road across a property, spend as much time on contour as you can. You put a road on property, it goes up and down. You got a lot of work to do to stop and prevent and fight erosion. You put a, a road on a piece of property on contour, think about a few little things, maybe a culvert here and there, uh, something we'd call a drive-through pond that we wouldn't get into today, etc. We can put almost no maintenance into a simple dirt road if it's properly designed. And as soon as that thing goes off contour, our workload, our maintenance load goes up. So how can we access the property? One of the big things we don't want to ever do is design access out. We can do things that seem like a really great idea, but now it's hard to get a vehicle back here. Well, I don't need a vehicle. You don't know that. And if it's a backyard, you might be thinking, well, it doesn't really matter. Look, I can see from the fence to the fence to the, to the house. So what? Well, you're designing your life. You, you're going to want to take a certain path to that certain area that you're going to create as a sitting area. And what's that going to look like? Once we understand the water and the access, now we can really think about the structure. The structure is already there. It might be this structure is poorly placed. Do, am I willing to deal with that? If there's no structure there, then I get the ability to look at the, the, the water and the access and put the structure in its best location. Within the limits, right? If it's on a road that has power and I want to bring grid power to it, the power company is going to say it will cost you X dollars to go beyond this distance. How do you make that determination whether that's a good investment or not? If you, does, if you look at the property from a water access structure standpoint and you know you can maybe eliminate a lot of long-term expense... And you can do the math and figure out that, okay, by bringing this power another 150 feet so that my structure can be here, I'm going to cut my ongoing expenses by $3,000 a year. If it's going to cost you $6,000 to bring that power that additional distance, then your payback is two years. It's not just because I want it, because I understand it. So from now on, when you look at property, and there's a hell of a lot more to ask about property than just this. But this is your core. If you have good water access and structure on a property, then you can solve most of your other problems. It can't solve a problem like it's got an HOA that's going to tell you you're not allowed to have chickens when you want a chicken. It can't solve a problem like it's in a state that has income tax and you don't want to pay income tax. It can't solve a problem like your neighbor's a complete asshole and it's going to interfere with your life. It can't solve a problem like the property taxes are ridiculously too high. So all of those other things that we normally look at, you have to look at. But we'll start from that core of water access structure, and that leads us to good design and good property selection. We can always see those patterns in a landscape. And, and that brings me to what I want to anchor each of these episodes with, design principles. So we have talked mostly today about ways to evaluate potential design And then techniques and tactics, right? Uh, a, a, a pond or a swale is a tactic. A particular way that we plant and manage a tree is a technique, right? When we move to principles, 
we're evaluating where we implement the technique or the tactic and the overall way that we implement a strategy. So the principle is a much more overriding concept that helps us think through all of these decisions. And the first principle I want to talk to you about today is obtain a yield. Obtain a yield. And this is one of the things that like, I really wish a lot of what I call purple breather permaculturists, the people that are very, very progressive leftists, that want to drag permaculture into politics, would really think about so they stop making people that are successful their enemy, right? Um, in all walks of life, whether it's in permaculture or outside. Obtaining yield is one of the most fundamental permaculture principles there is. We're doing all this for a reason. So if we're putting in a garden, if we put in 6,000 calories of work and 4,000 calories of food come out of it, It's a net loss. We can never survive with that ratio. We'll literally starve to death. Now, we can bring in food from other inputs, but you get my point. If I put in 6,000 calories of effort into a garden in any given cycle, during that same cycle, it should give me 12,000 calories of food, let's say at a minimum. That's 100% return on my labor. It's not just money. What do I get back? What is the energy audit? And I, you know, I talked about I build my business on permaculture. I obtain a yield. My membership fees, my advertising fees, my referral fees for, for my affiliate, that's a yield on my effort. If I have to spend $100,000 a year to produce the show and all the things that go with it, and I obtain a yield of $90,000 in revenue, I'm broken. You don't get the show anymore. I can't be responsible for myself. And I can't be responsible for my children, and I can't do what I want to do, and you can't get what I try to give. But if I put $100,000 in, and I take $200,000 in revenue, I have a $100,000 yield, a profit. Profit's not a dirty word. And now it's sustainable. Now I can have all the things that I really, really want, not everything I want, but all the things that I really want, and definitely all the things that I need, and I can make this system go on perpetually, And if you build a natural system in a way that continuously regenerates itself and never runs out, it will become self-replicating. That's why there are businesses that are you know, built off of what we teach. Because it works. You can see that it works. He's been doing it 11 years. He's not bankrupt. He's still happy. He still has the shit that he wants. Hey, the stuff that he says must work. I'll go do that too. Now, if I was on my fifth podcast in 10 years, and all of them went broke, and I kept telling you how you should build a business, you'd say, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. That's why he's still working for the man. And I'm not going to do what he says because it doesn't self-regenerate. It doesn't self-propagate. We have to obtain a yield. When we, It doesn't always have to be for us. If I plan a system that's for my pollinators, they obtain the yield. Now, they also help me increase my yield. If I'm building fertility, the worms obtain a yield. But it also feeds back to me because all the systems are interconnected. But whenever we're putting in something, we, what is the yield? If I'm going to spend $10,000 to build something, what are my potential yields for it? One is aesthetics. I just like it. Two is a property value. There's nothing wrong with considering that in there as well. I put this thing in for $10,000. 
If my property will sell for at least $10,000 more, assuming that I'm ever going to sell it, I, I broke even. I can make the case for that. Over time, it will probably go up in value. If I spend $10,000 to put in a system that produces $2,500 worth of food a year, in four years, the system is food profitable, and everything after that, assuming that maintenance is low, is a, is a yield. When I plant a potato, if it gives me 20 potatoes, it's a yield. If I plant 20 potatoes and get five, it's not a yield. Everything I do needs to be thought about from a standpoint of what is the yield. And again, it doesn't always have to be for me. It doesn't always have to be financial. It doesn't always have to be caloric. But it should be producing something where I'm wasting the energy. I don't pass the energy audit. I don't pass the financial audit. And if I do that long enough, I can have little places where I just did it because I like it. But if I do that long enough, eventually the system becomes not only non-regenerative, it becomes unsustainable. Next, this is a principle that I believe is my principle, even though I got it from the founder of Permaculture, Bill Mollison, because I can only find one place that he ever said it, and it was in a ramble, and he just blew right through it. And it is in a pamphlet that's put out, an over 100-page pamphlet put out by Barking Frogs Permaculture, which is just a transcript of his lectures that he did at their facility back in the 90s. And he says, he's going through all of this at one point, he just says the phrase, the forest floor is a lake. And when I read those words, it was one of those times when I'm reading, usually I blow through things, I have incredible reading retention, but there are times when something is so profound, I stop and I put it down and I contemplate it. And then if it's really profound, I research it. And if it's really profound, it becomes a guiding principle to my life. This is one of those. What I want you to think about is that in a good, mature forest, if you were to take about a foot of soil, a square foot of soil, and squeeze it and push the water out of it, you'll get anywhere from two to three inches of water out of that soil in the same footprint. So we have a square foot, a cubic foot. We have a foot high, foot deep, foot long, etc. We've got a square foot cubic foot of dirt, we push it, we put it into a tank that's a one foot, you know, 12 by 12 tank, we get, let's say, two to four inches of water in there. Let's just use two inches for our exercise. So now let's imagine a hundred acres of forest, and we now are going to get six inches of water for three foot of depth in that forest. So now we have a 100-acre, 6-inch puddle. Well, let's fold it in half. Now we have one foot deep that's 50 acres in size. Let's fold it in half again. Now we have 25 acres that's 2 feet deep. Okay? Now let's fold it in half again. We have 12 and a half acres that's eight feet deep. Wouldn't you call 12 and a half acres with eight foot of average water depth a lake? That's what's in that forest. Only in the first three feet. Some of those trees 
or a hundred feet tall. And they may have roots that go as deep as a hundred feet into the soil and infiltrate that water into that soil that deep. When you look at a forest, the floor is a lake. And when you start thinking about pattern recognition, which is so important in everything that we do in life, humans are designed to see patterns. That's why when something's poorly designed, your eyes fixate on the flaw. It's where the pattern breaks. That thing shouldn't be there. Or when something is out of place. That's why camouflage is not about complete mimicry, but it's about mimicking the pattern. A deer doesn't look like mossy oak camo on some dude's hunting suit. But it mimics the patterns of light and dark of the forest, and a deer will slip through the forest right in front of you, and if you don't know what to look for, you won't see it. Because that is camouflage, because the pattern matches. But if we take a white deer, put him in a gray forest, we see him very easily. We break the pattern. right? So we notice when something breaks the pattern. So when we see that pattern in the forest, we start to realize that everywhere we look, when we build a good ecosystem that's based on forest architecture, we're building an underground aquifer, we're building an underground lake. And you want to talk about eliminating the need for irrigation. You build deep forest humus and mature trees. And you can withstand just about any drought that you're ever going to go through. Next, another principle of design is connect all systems by relationship, function, and surpluses. So one of the things you should do when you decide, I'm going to put an element into my property. I'm going to have chickens. Well, those chickens need a place to sleep at night. So they're going to have a chicken coop. Um, they need water, so they're going to have a water solution. They need bedding, so they're going to have a bedding solution. So there's going to be this little ecosystem that is the chicken coop. Now, are those chickens going to free-range the property, or they're going to be in a holding area? Let's say we're going to do a coop and run, make it nice and simple. And so we have a coop, and we have a run for our chickens. And maybe, you know, we don't want them doing too much damage on the property. Maybe we let them out for an hour in the evening or something like that. They're not going to go very far, and that way they're not going to do too much damage to our property. So mostly those chickens are going to live in that coop and that run. Okay, what other systems on the property can be connected to those chickens? We eat food. We don't eat every bit of everything that we harvest. There's going to be waste. That waste is compost. We have a compost pail. That compost pail is connected to the chickens. Now it has to get to the chickens. How does it get to the chickens? Well, most likely, you know, unless we're a huge commune or something, the amount of food we're talking about could fit in a little pail. And a few times a week, the pail needs to go to where the chickens can get the stuff that's in it. Well, then there's going to be a path. So now the pail and the chickens and the path are all connected. Well, how, does the is there a magnetic lev train run by a robot that moves the bucket to the chickens and the pail? No, there's a human. So the human is connected to the chicken and to the trail and to the bucket and to the pit that the compost goes in. How does that all look? Now that creates an opportunity. So I know that every day I'm going to go out and let the chickens out. Every so often I'm going to be taking this bucket of compost there. So now I know that I have a little Zone 1 peninsula that goes from my house to where the chickens are. On both sides of that path are opportunities of design. What goes there? Now they're connected to those things. And you can literally write down every system on your property. 
and start drawing, just basically draw like a, like a bubble diagram. Chickens, swimming pool, barn, storage facility, garage, house, garden, rabbitry, food forest, orchard, whatever it is. Aquaponic system, pond, lake, river, stream, mailbox, driveway. And then, can you see any functional relationship between the two? Draw a line and write on that line what that functional relationship is. And then, look at each system. What are the inputs? What are the outputs? What are the wastes? The chicken has inputs. Food. Where's the food stored? Where's the food come from? How does the food get there? Right? What is the food? The food is a bag of chicken feed, but it's also that compost. What does the chicken produce? The chicken produces eggs. That's a yield. How do the eggs get back to the kitchen? How do we use the eggs? Are there more eggs than we need? Can we sell eggs to, to, the, to, the, to the family next door? Can that pay for the chicken's feed? Okay, that input now is a zero-sum cost. Right? Or it's at least reduced. How does that interaction work? What does the chicken produce in surplus? It produces scratching. It can be a problem. It can dig stuff up. Or we can give it a place that we want it to dig. And now we're channeling the behavior. What's that look like? And I mean, I could go on for hours with this, with functional relationships. But if you write that out, and you make, then all of a sudden you just, just can make all the connections Write down everything you can. Don't over-worry about it. Start thinking about your design decisions. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to put that couch on that wall in that living room because the best place for a TV is there. And there's a fireplace there. So if I put the TV there, it'll burn. Or the couch will burn, so I'm not going to put it there. Or the TV can go over the, the, the fireplace. Now the couch can go there. But it's really easy to design that living room because you've established the restrictions and the relationships. So last week we talked about design restrictions and making the design elegant. So now what we're doing is we've accepted the restrictions. Now we've created the connections. And the design literally spits itself out. It becomes so easy. And you end up, once you do this a few times, you almost don't have to do it again. You walk onto a piece of property and go, well, what do you want? Well, I want quail, I want rabbits, I want chickens. You sure? Yeah. Well, let's talk about an order of that because you're going to kill some when you start. So... But then I can, okay, then this is going to go there, that's going to go there, this is going to connect here, we put the rabbits over top of this, that's going to drop down into the compost section for the chickens. So the chickens are actively composting the rabbit waste along with the human waste. And it just, it, it, there's nothing to it. And we're going to put these trees over here, uh, and we're going to plant mulberry in that, and that's going to give me a, a, a tree yield of, of, of fodder for the rabbits that we're going to be able to just cut. So we're going to put those trees right there so that when we prune off the bottom of the mulberries, we can just flip them over the thing, and they're right there for the rabbits. And we're going to put this little you know, grass strip in. It's going to be like a little bit of pasture. Uh, then we're going to do that right at the edge of where the chickens are because that way the chickens can't tear it up because they're inside their holding area. But it's downgrade of the chickens' holding area, which is the nutrient flow, so that pasture is going to be really, really rich. So we're going to go in there with a scythe or a bag mower, and we're going to have that right next to the rabbit tree as well so that whenever we cut that, we can just take that uh, fodder that we're now taking from our little strip pasture and we drop it right into the rabbits. 
and maybe once a year we're going to have a chicken tractor that we're going to keep over here uh, when we're not using it behind the chicken coop because that's a nice place for it. Uh, but we'll just pull it out and we're going to run, you know, 24 meat chickens on this pasture to improve it every year, which is going to improve the quality of the food that goes to the rabbits and boom, boom, boom. And you're like, how do you know all this? Well, because it, because it all connects. Because it all connects. It becomes so easy to design. The design just falls out. And you say, well, then the design's always the same. No. Every design is different. But the connections are all the same. The next design principle, the problem is the solution. We kind of covered it. The chicken scratches. It makes holes. It messes up the garden. Well, don't let the chicken go in the garden. Well, that's just eliminating the problem. How do we make the problem into the solution? Let the chicken make the next garden. We'll put up some temporary fencing. We throw the chickens in there, and we keep them there. We take a tractor. We throw the chickens in the tractor. They Instead of moving the tractor daily, we keep the chickens at this spot until the ground is almost bare, and then we move it. And then we move it again until we, we basically build the trick chicken tractor the width of the next garden bed. And if it needs to move three times to make the next garden bed, fine. Then we can go and fill the chicken tractor with straw. And they'll tear the straw into the soil. And then we move it back to the middle. And we put straw and they'll move it. And by the time we're done, we have a raised bed the chicken built. The chicken that was the problem that tore up the garden now digs the garden. The problem is the solution. Right? We have too much runoff. And it's creating erosion on our property. We put in a, a properly designed swale. We harvest the runoff. We spread it out and soak it in. We move the water from the valleys to the ridges. The dry areas become moist and the, the wet areas become moist. We put in a dam. We take the surplus water and harvest the surplus water. The dam is never 100% sealed. There's always some seepage with a dam, so water begins to seep in the dam. We create another fertility cycle. The problem became the solution. And every problem that you can come up with, if you think about it, you can create a solution with it. It may not be the solution you're married to. That's the key to making this work. Well, I want a pond. I tried to force it on my property. I have a limestone bed. A guy promised me he could do it. He didn't do it. I have a hole in the ground. The problem became the problem because I was married to the idea that I wanted an in-ground big pond always wanted one my whole life, so I let that get in the way. But when you look at the way that the ground works around here, there's all types of things that it works well for. Put those things in place. You want a pond? Okay, we build ponds now with wood and pond liners because that works here. That creates its own opportunity. Pond overflows. Now it overflows into the swale. This overflows into the swale. The excess nutrient in the pond goes in the swale. That feeds the trees. The trees produce fruit. What I can't use goes to the chickens. They make compost, grows more trees. Right? Because everything's connected and the problem is a solution. The next thing is everything gardens. You start to realize how that all overlaps and interconnects. The problem is a solution. The chicken makes the garden. That means chickens garden. You build a compost area for chickens. You feed them all kinds of stuff, uh, waste product, rotted tomatoes, etc. The chickens get to the point where they're bored with that compost. You move them to a new compost area. You come back, tomatoes are growing out of the compost pit. The chickens ate the tomatoes, pooped out 
the freaking um, tomato seeds, encapsulated in chicken manure, and grew a tomato plant better than anyone you could have ever grown. You look at soil and no-till systems and say, how, when I pull this mulch back, can I stick my hand down into my elbow into this black soil that's never been tilled for the last five years? How can it be this way? My neighbor who has a garden that tills every year, by the next season, it's compacted again. There's no life in their soil. Microorganisms and worms and bugs till the no-till soil because everything gardens. Everything has an effect. You put a bird feeder over an area long enough, all of a sudden really cool plants start growing under the bird feeder. Why? Because the birds eat the seeds and crap on the ground and fertilize, and the seed holes go down there, and then the microorganisms come and they eat it, and everything gardens. Everything in nature, properly channeled, creates more abundance. Elephants tear down trees, but if we don't have overpopulation of elephants, and we don't have human encroachment onto their property, elephants expand savanna. And eventually they expand forest. As they rip out edge and only large trees advance. In Europe, the wild ox is what advanced the forest. The wild ox was a edge creature. In North America, deer and elk are edge creatures that expand the forest into the fields. Squirrels eat nuts. They bury nuts. They hide nuts. They forget some of them. Those nuts grow. Everything gardens. Ants go into the soil. They build a mound. They create a loose, friable area. When that mound eventually, it, it, you know, its population goes away, those ants move somewhere else. Then stuff moves in and grows where the ground was compacted. Now it's Loose. Termite mounds in Africa do the same thing. Humans garden, animals garden, birds garden, microorganisms garden, everything gardens. If we understand this principle, then we channel that activity into things that we want to happen. And then the biggest thing is patterns dictate design. People come here and they look at the swales in my three-quarter acre food forest. And they go, wow, it looks really cool. You got kind of this one big hook one, and then you got this one kind of long, wiggly one. And then you got this one at the bottom that's kind of a big zigzag. Like, how'd you come up with that? The landscape pattern told me where to put the swales. I went through with the laser level. I figured out where they were, figured out how many would fit, how big a space I wanted between them, and the pattern dictated the design. I didn't force the design on the land. The land told me what the design was. You go onto a piece of property and you look and it's a gentle sloping hill. It's got valleys and ridges in it. If you're going to do earthquakes, that dictates your design. But when we look at something like a garden, there's certain patterns and flows. We talked about sector analysis today. If I want to see my garden, there's a pattern that starts to emerge. Well, the places I can see my garden from the house are only in these locations. Now, this is really steep and rocky and nasty, and I probably can do something else with it, but this is a nice flat area with good eastern sun, and this is the sector of the solar uh, sector, and then there's my, wind, my window and my structure, and there's my path to the garden. So this is obviously the place for my garden. My garden doesn't necessarily need to line up with my back fence, Right? In a perfect linear lineup with the fence. That's an artificial design construct. 
Wherever I look, the pattern that I see dictates the design that I implement. How do I get the road across the property? The pattern is the contour line. How do I channel the wildlife? The natural wildlife corridor is the pattern. Everything that you, And pattern can be so much bigger because we can look at pattern of testiculation. We can look at pattern of spiral. We can design gardens into spirals and testicular patterns and, and, and what have you. We can use undulating patterns. Everywhere we look, we can see pattern in nature. But it's up to us to figure out what pattern works in this individual situation. So we always should be letting the pattern dictate the design, but we, we bend that also to the will of the designer and the desire for the property or the desire for whatever it is. Back to business for a second. There's certain patterns as to how consumers behave. If you're running a business and you ignore those patterns, you're fighting nature. Just like the farmer that tries to plow the curvy field straight instead of plowing the curvy field curvy so that the water is harvested on contour. When you run a business like a podcast, you know that there is a pattern of people that consume audio. If you're trying to make people that consume video happy with an audio podcast, you're fighting the pattern. Where does your podcast go? It goes in Spotify. It goes in iTunes. Right? It, it's, it's done where the audio is clear enough that people can clear you and understand you. You start to attract a certain pattern of people to a podcast. Now you need to feed them with the information and entertainment they're looking for. This is how you design a podcasting business. But if you were designing a fishing business, there's patterns. There's seasonal patterns to the fish that are available in your area. You need to focus the majority of your effort on attracting people that want to fish when the fish are plentiful. You schedule your vacation time for the time it sucks to fish. It doesn't matter what you're designing. You let the patterns, the natural patterns, dictate the design, and then you channel those patterns to get the desired result. If you don't do it, then the constructs created by others design your life for you. That's what this is really all about. And those are my final thoughts for you today. I want to reiterate this. This is why I think we should be teaching permaculture. If we're going to have schools for children to go to, we should be teaching permaculture in school. Now, I don't expect it to happen. And I don't expect it to happen because it is the most empowering knowledge that I can give you. It's why I put so much effort to it over the almost 11 years now that I've built this show. When you teach somebody to think with a permaculture mindset, and they take responsibility for themselves and that of their children, and they become a person that is driven by some really simple ethics and morals. They become, in many ways, ungovernable. You can't govern a person who is a permaculturist. Um, Jeff Lawton, I have heard him, when he's talking about this, use the term sedition. You create a society of people built on sedition. I think he said we could do with a little bit more sedition in one of those talks I heard him giving. Because if I can feed myself, if I can provide my own fibers and my own medicines, if I can look at any property and figure out how to make it serve the needs of humanity, whether it's for myself or for a client or a friend or a family member, my need of you starts to go down. When I take on a problem-solving ideology, which is what permaculture is, it is biological troubleshooting. Right? Here's how I solve these problems. 
eventually I'll get down to I only have two limitations on my ability to solve problems. Money and government. That's my only two restrictions. And sooner or later, if I'm good at what I do, I will solve the money problem. I will get somebody to back it. I'll earn enough. Whatever it is, I can fix the money problem. And the only thing I will be left with is the state that says, you can't have a chicken here. Right? And again, if the designer is good, the more restrictions, the more elegant the design. But you sure do not want an entire society designing around your systems of control. And this is why they will never, 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 never truly teach permaculture in government school systems. Because it is a, it is a sedition, insurgency mentality. Oh, they'll have some that they'll plant some trees and teach kids about trees and the soil food web and have some community gardens. But this systems level thinking... They're no more likely to do that than to start teaching the ability to spot logical fallacies. Because if you do this, it is a switch. And it is much like many things I've talked about in the world that we think of as being on or off. It is, But it is a dimmer switch. You start getting exposed to these ideals. It starts turning up, 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 up. And there is a point all along the way that that switch can go back down. There's also a point, if you've ever turned up a dimmer switch that has a maximum setting where it clicks. So like you're turning the lights get brighter, 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 and it goes click. And that light comes all the way on in full power, or that fan sp spins at its maximum speed, whatever that dimmer switch led up to. In the world of permaculture, in the world of troubleshooting, in the world of systems-level thinking, when that goes click, it is the freaking red pill, blue pill, I don't remember which one it is, it's a pill in the matrix where you wake up and you can never go back. That's why I encourage you on this journey. You will hit a point where I see this thing, I recognize this pattern, they're lying to me because that's the way they always lie. You'll read a headline of an article, a news article and go, fake news, whether you love or hate Trump, doesn't even matter. You say, that is a fake news headline because they always write it that way when they're full of shit. Like, there's yellow journalism because I can see the fanords. I can see that they couched, this thing will happen, maybe, experts say. That is a just load of shit. And I know it's a load of shit because it was a load of shit last time. You'll go to work. You'll see a problem. Here's a solution. I'm not going to bother because they're not going to listen. Right? So then I'll say, well, then I'll go build my own thing that implements the solution. Free-thinking, independent human beings. We can make our own money. We can make our own systems of exchange. We can build our own communities. We're a long way from getting there. Because in any movement, there's something called a critical mass. A point where there's enough people. It's not a majority. It's just a sufficient number that hit that click. And once that happens, it becomes a steamroller. becomes like a ball of snow rolling down a mountainside. And it's going to become just huge. And you can't stop it. We're a long way from there. As a group. As a movement. We're a very long way from there. But for you as an individual, you can have that click, that, that moment where you reach critical mass for yourself in your own life and you're uncontrollable anytime you decide to make the commitment. That's what this is really all about. That's why it is modern survivalism. I have found, it's amazing to me, I go to permaculture things, And I'm a survivalist. I'm, according to people, I'm the doom and gloom guy. And I talk to all these young people that are following permaculture. And they're so pessimistic about the future. They're so pessimistic. And I'm like, 
You're sitting here with a solution. Well, I'll never have land. Well, you won't. What? Well, you never. With that attitude, you won't. And we'll sit down. I'll say, well, what are your means? What are you doing right now? And I'll go, here's five ways you can have land of your own in the next five years. Pick one. I don't want to do that. Okay, then I can't help you. You're not willing to make, you're not, you're, the dimmer switch is about 50%, but it hasn't clicked yet. And that's why they won't teach it in schools, because I'll tell you who catches on fast. Kids. Not teenagers. And when I say teenagers, not late teenagers, early 20s. They've already been programmed enough by the very system we're talking about here that they, they have to be deprogrammed. You, you turn 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds onto this, 14-year-olds onto this, they become inoculated, even in the government school system. And then they take from that system like, oh, this is how math works. I can use this to calculate how much water this dam can hold. Not I'm going to solve for C because I want to get into college. And that's why they'll never teach it there. But that's why you should teach it to your children. That's why you should teach it to your grandchildren. That's why you should teach it to yourself. And that's why you should start asking yourself today, what are the patterns? How do they dictate the design? What thing actively gardens here, whether it's my customer in the way they talk about my company or whether it's a microbe and how it tills the soil? What is the problem and therefore how does that problem lead me to the solution? How do all these systems How are they all connected by relationship, function, and surplus? What is the accumulation, the forest floor being the lake, what is the accumulation of surplus or knowledge or asset in this situation? How do I obtain a yield from it? Those are the six design principles we had today. How earth-shattering is that to be able to understand it that way? Just those six things have that big of a transformative capacity on your life and on the lives of others. And take everything else that goes with that. And you really can't take charge and design your life. And again, once the switch clicks, the switch has clicked. It will never go back. So guys, with that, if you feel like you got 20 cents worth of uh, uh, value out of today's show and you're not yet a member of the MSB, consider becoming an MSB member. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members and obtain a yield. I said you had to obtain a yield today. Well, use the discounts that are there. You invest 50 bucks. You get 150 bucks back this year. You support the show. You get the knowledge, and you get money back in your pocket. That's the way to use this. And You know, one of our sponsors today, ButcherBox alone, could put $120 back into your pocket by getting high-quality grass-fed meat, pastured poultry, etc., just from the one discount alone in the MSB. So when I say you can get your money back, I mean it. Trees, you're going to plant trees, you're going to plant seeds, etc., bushes and vines and shrubs. Bob Wells Nursery gives you a discount. Any Seeds gives you a discount. Eden Brothers Seeds give you, gives you a discount. Um, high mowing seeds gives you a discount. And then there's like 70 other companies that give you discounts. And just about everything that you can think of at the MSB. And another way you can help us out, and it's really, really simple to do this, just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You're going to buy stuff online time to time anyway. A lot of times you're going to use Amazon. Go to tspaz.com. Get over to Amazon. Check out the deals today. Buy whatever you're going to buy anyway. You help us no matter what you buy. You'll also get items that I review uh, at tspaz alphabetical, etc. You can see the most recent reviews. Always on my website, you can find the most recent reviews. Just start scrolling. E-Tech City Laser Grip Digital Laser Temperature Gun is today's item of the day. We talked about permaculture today. You want to find microclimates on your property, get one of these things for $15. 
And you can go around, walk around your property, find the hottest and coolest points on your property, and start building a sector map based on that. You can use it in your cooking. I use it for my fish tanks. Uh, I, I have I, I, This is like one of the most versatile tools you can get. It's $15. Bucks. And let me tell you something about this little $15 tool. Recently, we had a problem with our heating and air conditioning system, and I had a tech out here to work on it. And he pulled out a laser temperature gun and was measuring the temperature of the heat coming out of the heat vent in the house. And uh, when I saw it, I, I took notice. I used to work for Fluke. I was a regional sales vice president for Fluke. And uh, he, it was a Fluke tool. And I said, how much are all these? He said, about 100 bucks. And I went and got my $14 one from, from E-Tech City. We were within one degree. Everywhere we pointed at the house, we were within a degree of each other. I also have a PS that explains the different ones available from E-Tech City. They range from about 15 bucks up to about 30 It all has to do with the temperature range. The one I'm recommending for 15 bucks will go from negative 58 degrees to 716 degrees Fahrenheit. Hey, for me, that's all I need. If you're going to build a tandoor, or a tandoor or something like that and you need 800 degrees, you can buy a $24 one. I explain everything in the review. But the E-Tech City Laser Grip Digital Laser Temperature Gun, again, if you read my article today, you'll see it's one of the most versatile tools you can own. runs on a simple, cheap battery. I don't know how long the batteries last, but I've got one that's two years old, still running on the battery that came with it because uh, it's not something you run around using you know, constantly. But you do use it a lot. Check it out, and you can always help us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day today. Um, song of the day today is by Bon Jovi. Um, I really love a lot of Bon Jovi's music, especially from the 80s, because I grew up in the 80s. Uh, this song is from the 80s. It's from the New Jersey album. It's called Blood on Blood. What I've always loved about this song is it's so much bigger than the storyline in it. The story is of, of, of you know, basically him and, and two of his friends that have now grown up to be a doctor and a lawyer, and it could be partially true, not true at all, but it's an interesting narrative. But as young kids, young teenagers, they made a pact that they would always be there for each other up to the point of becoming blood brothers, the old school way, cutting your hand and, and, and sharing each other's blood. And the biggest thing that I've always taken away from this song is the way it ends. And the way that it ends is they have it, they, they're years and miles between us. They haven't seen each other, barely talked to each other. But if I got a call in the dead of the night, I'd be right by their side. I think a lot of us when we're young view a lot of the relationships we have that way, and we think they'll be that way. But over time, over time, there are a few that we develop. I have a handful. I have a handful of those relationships. Some are people I haven't known for that long. Some go all the way back to the days when this song was released. And I would. Any of those people, if they called me at 2 o'clock in the morning and said, I'm in trouble, I need you, I would be there for them. And that number is relatively small. But I think the more people that we develop those relationships with, those interactions with, those connections with, the more we can say we've made a difference in the world. And the more we can say that we've truly lived a life worth living. So try to design that into your life as well. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life at Tom's Get Tough or even if it helps.